Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. Good evening, Grace. We're glad you're here with us tonight. Uh, Let's open our Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 18. Uh, The books of 1 and 2 Kings are one of my favorites in the Bible, so whenever I'm not in a series and I get the opportunity to teach and to preach, uh, this sometimes is my go-to book. And one of these days, perhaps we'll make our way through it on Sunday morning. 2 Kings chapter 18 and and chapter 19 is what we're going to be looking at tonight, but let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you for your sovereign grace. And we saw it in your word this morning, God, that you were the one by your spirit through the gospel message that draws sinners to you. And God, thank you that you are not only sovereign God, but that you are a good God. And that nothing, Father, in your sovereignty, nothing catches you off guard as Greg and I were just talking about. Nothing surprises you, nothing startles you, and nothing and no one in this world can thwart your plans because you are almighty and you are good. You're not distant from us, but you humble yourself, if you will, and you meet us where we are. And you did that most clearly in the person and work of your son. And we thank you for that, Father. Open our eyes to see wonderful things out of your word tonight. Open our our ears to hear what your spirit would say to us and receive great glory tonight, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine going to the movie theater and just sitting down right in the middle of one of the six of the Star Wars movies, or maybe at some point in the middle of one of the three movies in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Imagine that you knew nothing about any of these stories and that you came in late in the middle of the story and just sat down in the darkness and began watching the movie and joining it in progress. It's not the best way to enjoy those movies, is it? Or pick any movie. Pick your favorite movie and say you knew nothing about it and you just kind of dropped down in the middle of the theater in the dark and you were watching it. It's not the best way to enjoy or appreciate or even understand what is happening. And that's kind of what's taking place here in 2 Kings 18 and 19. Because we have not been going through this book, if we just drop down into the prayer in 2 Kings 19 verses 14 through 19, and we don't understand what's happening around it, it's not going to make much sense to us. And certainly our sermon title tonight will not make sense. How to pray when you goof up and 185,000 people want you dead. If we merely read Hezekiah's prayer and then we look at the sermon title, it's not going to make sense. So we need to do a little uh, work here to get the context. Tonight we'll learn some lessons on prayer that you can apply to your life whether or not you've goofed up and 185,000 people want you dead. Maybe that's your situation, then the application will be very easy. 
That was King Hezekiah's predicament. Maybe yours is different, but the fact of the matter is that both you and I and Hezekiah serve the same God. Every disciple's circumstance is different, but the God that we pray to is the same. How do you pray when you find yourself in a pickle? How do you pray when you find yourself in a difficult situation that is either brought on in your life because of your decisions, because of your actions, or a situation that has happened in your life because of something else someone else has done? What if you goof up and you mess up your life because of some action or decision? How do you pray then? King Hezekiah wants to help you tonight. He's got a t-shirt that says, been there, done that. Second Kings 18 begins with a, a breath of fresh air as you're reading through First and Second Kings. When you get to Second Kings 18, it's a breath of fresh air because here comes King Hezekiah, who has become king of Judah, and he is a godly king. We're going to be, read about him here in just a moment. But if you're interested, the same story here in 2 Kings 18 and 19 also occurs in 2 Chronicles 32 and in Isaiah 36. It's, it's a very important story in the Old Testament. It's recorded in three places. Let's look at 2 Kings 18 verse 1. And let's kind of get our bearings so we can understand what's happening in Hezekiah's life and so that we can figure out why 185,000 people want him dead. Verse 1, 2 Kings 18. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him, for he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but he kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses, and the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. The books of First and Second Kings in the Hebrew Bible are really just one book. It's the book of Kings. Uh, but they detail the rise and the fall of many kings in Israel and in Judah. If you remember, after the death of Solomon, the nation of Israel was broken in two, if you will. Israel, the northern kingdom, was in the north, obviously, because it was the northern kingdom. In, in the southern kingdom, there was Judah. And as you read through First and Second Kings, you kind of see the rise and fall of, of some good kings and a lot of bad kings. Some worshipped Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, and others turned away. Then here comes King Hezekiah to Judah's throne. Israel has already been carted off by the Assyrians. We'll read that in a moment. But here comes King Hezekiah, like a breath of fresh air. The text says that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, like David. 
If my memory serves me correct, I believe King Hezekiah and King David are the only kings that scripture says that the Lord was with them and that they had success in war and that they both defeated the Philistines. Hezekiah was up there with David. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, all the other uh, false Canaanite religions that people were, were worshiping. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. You remember the bronze serpent that Moses made and people had to look at it in order to be, to be healed. Apparently they kept it around and sooner or later people were like, let's start offering sacrifices to this thing. Then it says that he held fast to the Lord. It's the Hebrew word debak that is used in Genesis chapter two, verse 24, when it says that a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. Hezekiah clinged, he held fast to Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. It says in the text that he did not depart from following following the Lord, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and he would not serve him. And he struck down the Philistines. There had been a few great kings like Hezekiah before him, but there were none who were really like him. He got radical about his faith. He got extreme about his love for Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. Judah was a subject of Assyria, but Hezekiah still rebelled against Assyria, the most uh, political and dominant power of the day. Remember from our series in Jonah, we saw it in, in, Nineveh, the, in uh, Nahum this morning, that Nineveh was located in Assyria. The Assyrians were a wicked people. Remember, they would, if they captured you, they would cut off your hands, they would cut off your ears and your feet, gouge out your eyes, they would cut off your head and hang it in the trees like Christmas ornaments. And these are the people that King Hezekiah rebels against. But Hezekiah also had a lapse of faith and he backpedaled when Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, put the heat on Judah. Here's where we learn our our first lesson in prayer. Lesson number one is realize that you could have a faith lapse and pray that you don't. Realize that you could have a lapse of faith and pray to God that you don't. And I don't mean you're turning away from the Lord completely and saying, I'm not a Christian. I'm just saying you could have a moment where you sin, or a moment where you do something dumb, pray to God that you don't. Look at verse 13 with me. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong, withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid, and he gave it to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria sent the tartan, 
the Rab Saris and the Rab Shaka with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway to the washer's field. And when they called for the king, there came out to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. See, we already read earlier that Hezekiah stood up to the bully Sennacherib, but then later on, some years later, he cowers in fear when Sennacherib puts the heat on him. Hezekiah gives away the treasuries of his own house, and then he actually strips the gold from the temple itself to give to this wicked pagan king. How do we explain this lapse of faith by a king who we just read in verses 1 through 8 was like King David? How did this guy who had it all together have this lapse of faith? How do we reconcile the description of Hezekiah in verses 1 through 8 with the cowardice that we see in verse 13 through 16? First, understand that we get a synopsis of King Hezekiah's life. The description in verses 1 through 8 is this broad view of his life. He was not perfect. He was not sinless. Only Jesus is. Amen? But overall, he was a godly king, much more than many others. And yet he had this lapse of faith. Clearly, he dropped the ball, spiritually speaking. But it gives us hope. His lapse of faith does not discredit his life and service. There is no conflict here between his perfect record that we see in verses 1 through 8 and the slip up in verses 13 through 16. Isn't that the life of every disciple? Don't we sin? Don't we make boneheaded decisions sometimes? Don't we do stupid things that we are ashamed of? Don't we sometimes goof up? Doesn't the chain sometimes come off the bicycle of faith? Sure it does. Believers who have great faith and are courageous for the Lord can stumble at times, will stumble at times. And that's where we learn our first lesson in prayer. Lesson number one is realize that you could have a lapse of faith and pray that you don't. Hezekiah stumbled just like Jonah, just like Peter, just like the other disciples, just like me, and just like you. This is where the gospel comes in. This is where we're called to remember Jesus when we have a lapse of faith. We are to dwell on his perfect life. We are to thank God that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to do what we could never do. And when you do slip up and you do stumble and you do sin and you do something stupid, pray and then rehearse the gospel. But realize you could blow it big time and then pray to God that you don't. The story continues in verses 19 through 36. I'll give you the condensed version. I encourage you to go home tonight and read it. But after this uh, giving away of all the treasuries, Sennacherib then is like, you know what? I'm gonna send an army of 185,000 towards you, Hezekiah. Thanks for the gifts. 
Here comes 185,000 soldiers, and they're going to surround Jerusalem, and you're going down. So Hezekiah uh, is there trapped in Jerusalem, and Sennacherib sends 185,000 soldiers, and then some of uh, Sennacherib's leaders come to the city wall, and they start calling out to the leaders that Hezekiah sent out there. And they say, you're going down. Don't trust in Egypt. If you trust in Egypt, they're like a a little reed. You trust on them and they'll poke your skin. They're not going to be able to sustain you. And if you think you're going to trust in Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, do you remember what we already did to the northern kingdom? You can't trust in Egypt. You can't trust in the Lord. You're going down. And then the leaders that Hezekiah has sent out to them said, hey, can you uh, keep it down a little bit? People on the wall might hear you. Better yet, why don't you speak to us in Aramaic? Because you're, you're telling us this in Hebrew, and everybody can hear you. Would you please speak to us in Aramaic? Because they don't know it. Well, how do you think the Assyrians responded? Remember, they're people that gouge out your eyes and cut off your ears. Do you think they said, okay, we'll speak to you in, in Aramaic? No way. He said, we're not going to speak to you in Aramaic. In fact, we're going to keep speaking to you in Hebrew because we want the people in the city to hear our message. You're going down. You can't trust Egypt. You can't trust the Lord. You can't trust Hezekiah. But if you just surrender, we will cart you off to another place into exile and you will live in the lap of luxury. But if you don't do it, We're going to build siege works against this city. And as it says in verse 27, sooner or later, you're going to be eating your own dung and drinking your own urine because no one's going to be able to come or go. And you're going to be very hungry and very thirsty. So they called out in a loud voice and said, you can't trust Hezekiah. You can't trust Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, to save you. You can't trust Egypt. And then word reaches Hezekiah. And what does Hezekiah do? Hezekiah prays and he seeks the face of the Lord. And Hezekiah calls on the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah comes and he gives Hezekiah a promise. The word of the Lord comes to Hezekiah and says, Sennacherib is not going to lay a finger on you. I am going to wipe them out. Do not fear. Well, Sennacherib's not done. He's off fighting another battle. He sends another letter to Hezekiah and says, you're going down. You are going to be destroyed. No one will be able to save you. Did you not see what we did to the northern kingdom of Israel? Did you not see what we did to all the other nations and their gods? You're next. So what does Hezekiah do? Let's pick up the story in 2 Kings 19, verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers. This is the letter from Sennacherib, and he read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. He rolled out the scroll that had this threat on it. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. 
Incline your ear, O Yahweh, and hear. Open your eyes, O Yahweh, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Yahweh, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Yahweh, our God, save us, please, from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Yahweh, are God alone. Hezekiah receives a copy of the threat from Sennacherib and he spreads it out before the Lord and he prays. Lesson number two, realize that your predicaments become an opportunity to commune with God. That's what Hezekiah is learning. Hezekiah got himself into this mess when he had his lapse of faith and gave away the treasuries of the temple. He should have trusted the Lord to provide him with the victory that we already read about in verses 1 through 8 that the Lord had been providing for him, but he was fearful and he bowed to Sennacherib. But this is what I love about our God. God has a way of turning around the predicaments that we get ourselves in. Isn't that good news? In fact, all of the trials and tribulations that we face, whether they are brought on by others or by our own sin or by our own stupidity, they become opportunities for us to pray and to fellowship with our God. One commentator, R.S. Wallace, says it best this. He says, Sennacherib, in dictating his letter, has indeed provided Hezekiah with the most eloquent means of fellowship with God. I love it. It's a death threat. He gets a death threat from one of his enemies, and it becomes the most eloquent means for Hezekiah to fellowship with his God. Get that perspective. When trials and hardships and circumstances come flooding into your life, instead of being overwhelmed by them, be overwhelmed by the truth that you can take them before your heavenly father in prayer. Be overwhelmed and flabbergasted that because of Jesus, you can approach a holy God and pour your heart out before him. I do not want to underestimate the overwhelming power of our trials or the consequences to our sins and our goofs up because it's real and it's raw. But let that overwhelming feeling, that feeling of helplessness, be the thing that catapults you into the very presence of God. See, our predicaments become opportunities for us to fellowship with the God that we love and the God that so desperately loves us. That's what Hezekiah does. He's overwhelmed. There are 185,000 Assyrian soldiers that have him and the city of Jerusalem surrounded. There is nowhere to go. He is helpless. But that feeling of helplessness is a good thing 
That feeling of helplessness when trials come into your life is a good thing. It is a God thing. In his excellent book, which is simply titled Prayer, Oli Halesby says this, My helpless friend, your helplessness is the most powerful plea which rises up to the tender father heart of God. Helplessness is the real secret and the impelling power of prayer. You should therefore thank God for the feeling of helplessness which he has given you. It is one of the greatest gifts which God can impart to us. For it is only when we are helpless that we open our hearts to Jesus and let him help us in our distress according to his mercy and grace. I never grow weary of emphasizing our helplessness for it is the decisive factor, not only in our prayer life, but in our whole relationship to God. As long as we are conscious of our helplessness, we will not be overtaken by any difficulty, disturbed by any distress or frightened by any hindrance. We will expect nothing of ourselves and therefore bring all of our difficulties and hindrances to God in prayer. And this means to open the door unto him and to give God the opportunity to help us in our helplessness by means of the miraculous powers which are at his disposal. Helplessness becomes prayer the moment that you go to Jesus and speak candidly and confidently with him about your needs. Helplessness becomes prayer the moment that you go to Jesus and you speak candidly and confidently with him about your needs. Hezekiah was helpless and he knew it. And that's why he prayed. He had the promise of God through Isaiah that everything was going to be okay, that he would be delivered, but he still prayed. He just didn't sit back and do nothing. He had a promise in God's word, and yet he still prayed. Why? Because he knew how helpless he was. Lesson number two, realize that your predicaments become an opportunity for you to commune with God. The next time you are overwhelmed with trials and tribulations or you are having to deal with the consequences to your actions, thank God that you have that feeling of helplessness. That's grace. And thank God that you have another opportunity to get alone and fellowship with him through prayer. That's what our trials are. They're just an open door. Think back to the days, those of you who are married or maybe you're engaged, you have a boyfriend or girlfriend, you, you have someone that you love. Think back to those days when you were dating and man, things were just like they could never get better, right? Think back to those days when you just couldn't wait to spend time with that significant other. And think back and imagine if somebody said, you know what, you can spend the day with your fiance or your boyfriend or girlfriend. But in order to do that, You're going to have to drive around in your car and you're going to have a flat today and it's going to be 100 degrees outside and then it's going to start raining in the middle of you changing the flat and you're going to go to the restaurant soaking wet and dirty and and the the waitress is going to forget about you and it's going to take an hour to get your food and and then you're going to go to the movie theater later and someone behind you is going to spill their, their Coke on you. 
If they told you that and they said, you can do that or you can have a perfect day with no flat tire, no rain, no heat, a meal immediately when you sit down at a restaurant, no Coke coming over your shoulder at the movie theater, but you can't be with the one you loved, which option are you going with? You know you're going with the flat tire, aren't you? Because you're with the one you love. The same is true with our trials and our circumstances. When they come into our life, it's just another opportunity for us to spend with the God that we love. It's another opportunity for us to spend time and to commune and to fellowship with the God that we love and the God that loves us. Take your problems, take the, even the bill that you don't have money for maybe, whatever it is, be like Hezekiah, just lay it out before the Lord. Just take it and say, here's the situation. Here's what's going on. I'm helpless and I'm coming to you. Do you see it? Here it is right here. Spread it out before him and ask him to intervene. He loves to do that for his children. There's another lesson to learn from Hezekiah. Lesson number three, realize that you are praying to the sovereign God. I know it sounds like a no-brainer, but that's what Hezekiah does. Notice what he says to God about God in verse 15. O Yahweh, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Hezekiah hits the refresh button on his theology and he remembers the sovereign, powerful creator God that he serves and this actually helps his helplessness. Picture Hezekiah surrounded by an army of 185,000 Assyrian soldiers who can't wait to chop off one of his ears or his hands. And then he speaks to his God about God. I would call this Old Testament gospel rehearsal in, in prayer. What better way to build up your faith than by remembering in prayer the God to whom you are praying? Understand this, how we start our prayers can be very helpful. How we address God can actually stir up our faith as we pray. We may actually start believing in the God that we pray to as we pray to him about him. Lesson number three, realize that you are praying to the sovereign God. It's a no-brainer. Realize, remember, rehearse who you are praying to when you pray. Let it sink in for a moment. Because of Jesus, I can come boldly to the throne of grace to receive grace and mercy in my time of need, just like Hebrews 4.16 states. Let that sink in when you pray. Realize that you are praying to the most powerful person in the universe. I know we all know it. We would all answer that answer correct, that question correctly if, they took, if we took a quiz. True or false? Is God the most powerful person in the universe? We would all circle true. We know that. But do we really 
know it when we pray. That's what Hezekiah does. Because notice how he talks about the other gods in verses 17 through 18. It says, Truly, O Yahweh, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. Hezekiah knows there is only one sovereign God. And Christian, when you pray, you pray to him. There's another lesson to learn here, our last lesson. Lesson number four, realize that your predicaments become opportunities for God to be glorified. Of course, Hezekiah's prayer is birthed out of his situation. I mean, he's looking out his window and he sees 185,000 Assyrian soldiers who are looking for him. But that's not all there is to his prayer. He is concerned about God's glory being seen in the world. Look at verse 19. So now, O Yahweh, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Yahweh, you, O Lord, are God alone. Yes, Hezekiah wants to be delivered from imminent death. But more than that, he wants the nations of the world, specifically Assyria, to know that Yahweh is the sovereign Lord of all the earth. Let Hezekiah's prayer remind you that we exist to bring God glory. That's why we were created. And every single circumstance that happens in our lives should be seen through this lens. It's another opportunity to glorify God. So whatever happens in your life, remember, whatever it is, you know for sure. You may not know why it's happening at some level, but you know for sure it's another opportunity for God to be glorified. Think how that will change how you view whatever happens in your life. Even when you goof up and mess up your life, God can use it for his glory. See, sometimes we make decisions that really mess up our lives and we just have to ride out the consequences. Sometimes God saves us like he does Hezekiah. Sometimes we just have to ride out the consequences. Sometimes our decisions land us in a place that we can't expect an easy out. Sometimes there is no way to unravel the knots that we have created or have been imposed on us by others, or the hard providences that the Lord has imposed. Sometimes you just can't fix things the easy way. There's no spiritual glue or caulk that can fill the cracks. So what do you do when you find yourself in one of these situations? You listen to the word of God like Hezekiah did. You pray and you be obedient. You trust in his grace to enable you to live in the middle of difficult circumstances. And God's grace is found in his word. And obedience to that word in difficult situations is what will keep you afloat and sustain you. This is what happened to David Brainerd. 
Maybe you've heard of David Brainerd. He was a student at Yale University in 1742. Revival was beginning to break out among, among the student body. Many of the, the professors were cold to the Lord and his movement that was happening among the student body as the great awakening was beginning. And David Brainerd was overheard by one of his tutors to say this. One of his tutors a young man by the name of Chauncey Whittlesey. There's a very dignified name for any of you pregnant ladies looking for a name for your baby. There's a first and middle name. Chauncey Whittlesey has a ring of, of, uh, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Royalty. It's very dignified. There is a tutor at Yale University named Chauncey Whittlesey. And an off-the-cuff remark by David Brainerd about Chauncey was this. David said, he has no more grace than a chair. Doesn't seem like that big of a deal, does it? As a result of those eight words, Brainerd was expelled from Yale University and his hopes of pastoral ministry ministry were dashed. You see, back then, if you didn't graduate from a university, you couldn't get ordained and you couldn't pastor a church. I'm sure there were meetings, there were conversations, but in the end, Yale University expelled David Brainerd because of something he just kind of said off the cuff, I'm sure. But the Lord had other plans. David Brainerd went on to be a missionary to the Native American Indians, and it is said that his life has sparked more interest than missions than anybody else. You can read about his life, Jonathan Edwards, one of my favorite theologians, edited his diaries. You can read them. You can find them on the internet. You can buy them in book form. This is what John Piper says about Brainerd. There's a tremendous lesson here. God is at work for the glory of his name and the good of his church, even when the good intentions of his servants fail, even when that failing is owing to sin or carelessness. One careless word spoken in haste and Brainerd's life seemed to fall apart before his eyes. But God knew better and Brainerd came to accept it. In fact, I am tempted to speculate whether the modern missionary movement, which has so repeatedly inspi- which was so repeatedly inspired by Brainerd's missionary life, would have happened if David Brainerd had not been expelled from Yale and cut off from his hopes to serve God in the pastorate. But God alone knows the would-have-beens of history. And so David Brainerd's plans were changed by a sovereign God, yet his short life was remarkable. He lived 29 years, five months, and 19 days. Only eight of those years were as a believer and only four as a missionary. And yet his life was not wasted because of some careless thing he said about a tutor at his school. David Brainerd remained obedient to his God to the end, and so did King Hezekiah. Actually, King Hezekiah will have another lapse of faith because after this, pride enters his heart, and the Lord will have to discipline him then. But for the most part, 
Hezekiah remained obedient and faithful to the end. Well, the Lord, I left you hanging. I left you hanging. There's 185,000 soldiers from Assyria around Jerusalem, kind of like I picture it like in the Lord of the Rings, part two at Helm's Deep, when you've got all these orcs coming to, to uh, you know, destroy and break through the wall. I left you hanging with 185,000 soldiers around Jerusalem about to kill Zechariah. I'm sorry. So let's, let's tie that up because I don't want you going home thinking about poor Hezekiah. The Lord did come through for Hezekiah and the nation of Judah. And the rest of chapter 19, Isaiah promises again. He gives Hezekiah another word, another promise from the Lord that Sennacherib will be destroyed. But let's pick up in chapter 19, verse 32. Therefore, thus says the Lord, this is Isaiah prophesying. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mount against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Here comes the best part. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people of Judah arose in the morning, behold, there were all these dead bodies. It's the Hebrew word, hene. It invites the, the audience into the scene. It says, come here, come here and look at this. They want, it, they want you to see it with your eyes. Come here and get a look at this. 185,000 dead Assyrian soldiers because our God loves us so much. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and he lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his God, Adramelech and Sharezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. The Lord wiped out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers who wanted Hezekiah dead. Why? Verse 34 has the clue. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David. This is the sister verse to Romans 8, 28. Is that God is doing things for his glory, for his namesake, and he's doing things in this world for the good of his people. So when you goof up and you mess up, and you say something off the cuff like David Brainerd and hard consequences come into your life, or maybe you sin and you're dealing with hard consequences, or maybe you just slip up. Remember, God is still going to get glory out of that situation and he will still bring good out of it for you. So trust him. Keep praying and keep trusting. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that you are the almighty God, in that no slip up, no lapse of faith, no goof up, no sin, nothing that we do as mere mortal men and women can tie your hands. 
that you specialize in taking situations that are messed up, whether we cause them or not, whether they are caused by others, God, you, you specialize in taking those situations and those circumstances and you specialize in bringing good to us and you specialize in getting glory. Would you give us grace when we find ourselves in those situations? Would you help us to remember that we pray to you, the sovereign God, and that these predicaments become opportunities for us to talk to you and to be with you, the God that we love so much. And would you help us to remember in the midst of those situations that you love us more than we could ever, ever imagine? Do it for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.